This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Delighted to be joined on CFB today by Mark Burcham. Since I started the show, um, Neil McGuinness and Peter Ramage, two guys who listen to the show, both have been on the show. I've said you need to get Mark Burcham on. You just need to do it. So they've helped me. I've finally got them, Mark. <laughs> I'm good, thank you. The the first question I've got for you, um, very generic question. What are you up to now? Um, I know obviously there'd been media reports, etc., about yourself a while ago, and. Yeah. And it's quite mad, as I'm sure you're aware, but I know that's been dealt with now and, and you're looking forward to the future. Yeah, well, I'm quite, quite happy to talk about it. It was the strangest thing that's ever happened in my life where out with my friend and his, his girlfriend, we was having a meal because I've been in lockdown. I was in lockdown in Tampa because I was in Bahamas. The, the island was on full lockdown. And then uh I got out, went to Tampa, thinking it'd only be a couple of weeks. It ended up being three months. And then finally I got a flight home back to England. And I took my took my friend and his, uh, his girlfriend out for dinner. And then I was just attacked by a random person who was an ex-Marine or well, was a Marine and then threatening to kill me and then defending myself. And then I ended up in maximum security for <laughs> over 24 hours which was ridiculous and I can, I can speak with my time in there it was just I can go into that that's, that's a whole other podcast if you want it, there's some I think that it's a more of an adult nature one for that but yeah so I was there and then the American system uh, they found out I was totally innocent because they looked at the CCTV and everything and then it, it got completely thrown out but what didn't help was the the media in England got hold of the story somehow and then printed it. it. It was terrible that the media printed it because I was totally innocent. And if you look at the if you look at the mugshot, well, I thought I was guilty looking at the mugshot. I looked like an absolute homeless crackhead in, on the mugshot, but they keep you up for like 22 hours, don't let you sleep. Then when I had my mugshot, they said, oh, open your eyes wider because we can't see your eyes. And they try and make you look as guilty as possible. So... That happened, and the American system—they sort of initially charge you. They don't charge you; they initially charge you. You have to pay bail to get out, which I'd done. And then two days afterwards, they looked at the case, CCTV evidence, witness statements, and then it got thrown out. So yeah, it was strange. But the good thing about the the paper that uh, printed it, first of all, in England, was that that's the only way my family knew that I was in, in prison because I was meant to be flying home. They couldn't get hold of me on the phone because they thought I was flying. But they printed what prison was in, so they could they could post bail. I'd have, I'd, have, I'd have been in there because it's so weird. You can't, when you're in there, you don't know. I, the only numbers I know off the top of my head is my dad and uh, my brothers, but you can't ring abroad. So you're stuck in there. <laughs> so you're stuck in there. My bail was £10,000. So... If you can't do anything, you're stuck in there till they let you out, which would, would have, you wouldn't have known. But yeah, maximum security. I was in the jumpsuit. Uh, 
it, it was strange. So they put me through, which I can do. Another thing, once before I went through to the to the county jail, they, you go through to a welfare, welfare officer where you get caught drug tested, you get uh, you get your health check, and then they tell you about the rape protocol in the prison. I was like, you what? And they're like, yeah, 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 the Polaris Jail rape protocol. We don't tolerate any type of rape and zero tolerance on rape. And going through this rape, and I'm like, and then the last question of it was all, I, are you worried about getting raped while you're in custody? I was like, I am now, you've got a protocol on it. And then, and then you get put through and then the other prisoners got little handcuffs, they're taken away. And then they come for me. I thought they'd come for Hannibal Lecter. They've come through, they've got all these chains, they've got a belt and that, that, that was for me. They put a belt, I went, hold on a minute, what's happening? And they're like, oh no, yeah, I'm a serious dangerous felon because I was getting done for, ABH, GBH, aggravated assault, looking to maim with a deadly weapon, attack with a deadly... And I'm like, what? I'm innocent. It's self-defence. Then they put me, put me in an armoured truck, took me to maximum security. Yeah, that's another story. I was in there and then I was in there all that time. And all they, all they kept saying was, like, it's self-defence. This is the police officers. You'll get off it. You'll go to court in the morning. And then there was no court. I went to court in the morning, they just read out what my charges were, said I was looking at 15 years in maximum security, found guilty, and my bail was 10 grand, off you go. Took me back up to maximum security, and I was like, I got to use the phone, when we allowed out next? This was about like lunchtime, and they went, oh, yeah, they let us out at 10 o'clock at night. I was like, what? And they went, oh yeah, we're serious dangerous felons, we're only allowed out three hours a day, and you've had two hours of them in court. And I was like, oh no. So that that so luckily my brother managed to find out which jail was in to post bow out and they let me out after like thirty six hours. So yeah, just the strangest thing in the world. Just from being attacked yourself to then being put in there it was like ridiculous. And as you, you you mentioned the media side of it when the story broke, you know what the UK media is like. As soon as one person breaks it, it's everywhere and it's on radio and whatever as well. And and I imagine for you, especially when you were proven innocent, that you must have looked back at that and went, what's going on here? Why, why was this spread so quickly? Yeah, well, it's probably spread so quickly because there was no football or sports going on. So it was a, a bit of a story there. And then when you take... What, what I was disappointed about, because it affected my family. Like, my kids, I've got a son who's 17 and the girls are 13 and 10. So they're up on social media. So, like, when it's, when it's broke... The, the paper reported I attacked a pregnant woman with a dangerous weapon in the early hours of the Sunday morning. So early hours Sunday morning, making out like they always do that. So you do, it was a Thursday night. So, and and then it was for the 36 hours they couldn't get hold of me, and they're looking at the thing saying I've attacked someone and I'm looking at 15 years. That that really worried them. For me, it wasn't a problem because I knew I was completely innocent. But for the rest of your family, if it had happened to one of my brothers or sisters or someone or someone in my family, you worry more. So that was a worry. And then the kids being at their age, of course, their friends and family that they find out. And it's like, they, it's, the, it's the moment of not knowing. But as soon as I come out and told my story, they, they was fine with it. And it got thrown out so quickly, they knew it. But the, the disappointing thing is that you can print it. And as long as the papers write it in a sort of way, allegedly, then they can get away with it. And it's just, the good thing about it was the football community, like social media, they, it does come in for some criticism and rightly so, but 
I people that know me, I don't care about anything like that. But when I did come out, you you're frustrated and angry because you think I've done nothing wrong here. And the social media was really good for me. Like everyone was good, especially like the QBR fans, the Mill fans, that they, they were good. But the rest of the football community were like, everyone who knew me knew I wouldn't start anything like that. And, and they were like, also positive. And then again, the football community with my friends that are in football, chairman of other clubs and uh, owners of other clubs, they were on the phone saying, look, Burs, we knew they you've got no chance of doing this, you've got our backing, if you ever need something, you need to come back home and let us know. So that, that, was, that was really touching. That, that was a good thing that come out of it. But again, the British press, it does get slaughtered, rightly so. And it was just a non-story, really, because if it happened to someone, then it wouldn't have even made the papers. And even if they'd have waited, even like a day to get the facts, then they would have known it was a non-story. But I suppose... There's always like younger reporters looking to make a bit of a name for themselves. It got it got printed in the way that it did. And following on from that, um, what are you up to in terms of football now? Because you've been out in the states for a few years. You obviously were working back home at QPR last of all when you were in England. But what, yeah. what does the future hold for you? Yeah, well, as I said, I've been offered the, the technical director role in Bahamas, which is something. A, a complete, I'd say, a different page, but it's a completely different book to what I've been doing. I, when I left QPR, they were brilliant. They wanted me to stay on. I didn't think it was right. Like, I'll come in with you and all the way. And I think if you're an assistant, you go in with the manager. You should leave with the manager. And they, but they were brilliant. They wanted me to stay. They wanted me to be the bridge between the first team and the academy. Really, creating a role to keep you there to be like the club man, which I, I could never be. That's people that know me. That's not me. And I thought to give the new staff a chance to come into the club and do well, it's better that I'm not being there because anyone who knows, if you're, if you're at a club and you do well and the, the fans like you, as soon as the results start going bad, they'll start cheering for you. You become like a, a bit of a, a bit of shadow on the, the management team there. So I just thought it better to have a clean break, move away and take a bit of time off football because I haven't had any time off football since I was 16. Like I left school, went into Millwall and then luckily from there been playing and I retired and went straight into the coaching and I've literally not had, a, I've never taken my kids on a summer holiday. So I thought I'm going to take a year and a bit out, which I did. And then now getting back into the, getting back into the coaching side of it, really exciting. And let's rewind to, to being 16. You mentioned the fact. Oh, you I've left. got to rewind one story in the prison that did make me giggle. Like, <laughs> So your maximum security, so I'm in there with one of them's whatever he's done, the other one's uh, trafficking people around. There, there's absolutely, I'm in with lunatics in this 12 by 12 cell. And so we're not allowed out with the other uh, inmates because we're serious dangerous felons. So you get a TV, there's a TV on the wall. So you've got our cells here and it's, it's a fair way. It's, a, it's about if you put your phone on the wall, that's how much as the TV I can see. So you get one film a day. So you get one film a day and like, it comes on at six o'clock and it can't have no sex, violence or swearing in it. So I'm sitting there because every minute seems like an hour because you've got nothing to do. So it comes on, I thought, what are they, what are they going to put on? They only put on Harry Potter. So Harry Potter number one comes on. So I'm thinking, oh, Harry Potter. First thing you come in here, I've seen this loads of times for when the kids were younger. But then, in the other cell, they start going, yo, London, it's your boy Harry, it's your boy Harry. And I'm like, oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 
yeah, Harry's a bitch. I'm going to fuck him up. I'm going to... I'm like, mate, it ain't even real. I don't know Harry. You can do what you want to him. I'm not bothered. Yeah, Harry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do Harry. Harry's up. I'm like, oh, here we go. Out of all the films, they put on Harry Potter, and then all the, all the way through the film. Yo, yo, London. Look at him. Look at him. I'm like, oh, here we go. Oh, that's true. Yeah, in terms of mum film was Harry Potter. I'm like, oh god. Now, only time I see anything Harry Potter, I'm thinking about that. <laughs> and you mentioned there, sorry, but. You started in football when you were 16, you leave school, you go into Millwall. Millwall's a club that, from people who maybe don't follow them closely, they've got a reputation as being a fierce club, the Den, you know, a really intimidating place to go. What was it like in the 90s when you were coming through and you broke into the first team there? Yeah, so it was a bit strange how I ended up at Millwall because I was at QPR from nine to up to the age of 15 and my dad was like one of the youth coaches at QPR and... There was like a legendary older coach, Tom Wally. He was a youth team coach and he was at Millwall. And then he, they come in for me. They really wanted me. And yeah, my, my dad got rid of me to, to Millwall. I was devastated. Absolutely devastated. I'm like, no, no. Like, so QPR offered me a, a youth team scholarship. And he's like, no, no, I'm sending you to Millwall. And I was like, what? No, no, I want to play for QPR. I said, no, you've got a better chance at Millwall. Your personality, the way they bring like players through. He said, I think you've got a better chance there of making it. And he said, like, one day you might come back to QPR. But my mate at the time, was, he was a couple of years older, was Kevin Gallen, who was, he was breaking records left, right and centre. He scored 120 goals in two seasons in the youth team. Like, broke the record. He weren't even playing in the reserves because they had, they had Bradley Allen, Dennis Bailey, Gary Thompson in the reserves. You've got Les Ferdinand playing in the first team. So he, he weren't even getting games in. So, yeah, so reluctantly, I moved down to South London at 16, like, left school, went down there and turned out to be, like, turned out to be a great move. It, at one stage, it didn't. When Mick McCarthy was there, I was actually going to go to Lake Norian at one stage. And then, I don't, I, I'd always, always go back to, Young players, when they're starting, you need a hell of a lot of luck to make it in the player. Ability is only a little, I think only a small part of it. Ability, it's mentality, how you deal with disappointment. Because if you become a footballer, I'd say 60% of your time is disappointment. There's only a certain amount of times you can win the league if you're not at their clubs or have a really... It's, the best players deal with disappointment the best. And I remember I was... Yeah, I was going to go to Lake Norian, but we was in the FA Youth Cup and we had Oldham away, I think, in the quarterfinals. And I said, no, I'm going to stay. I was the captain. I'm going to stay to play in the FA Youth Cup. And Mick McCarthy literally left the week before. And we played Oldham away. And the manager, Tom Wally, went, you've got to play right wing. Well, I'm centre midfielder. And I, I don't, no, you've got to do a job there. Like, Come on. And I played right midfield. And I played really well. And then... Two days later, I went in to train my last day at Millwall and to collect my boots and stuff. And then this ginger fella's walking across the pitch. I was this guy and he walks over, like North, he had a Northern Irish accent, but it was a bit of a Scottish twang. And I'm like, and he started asking about myself and he, he said, oh, you played really well against Oldham the other night. And I was like, okay. Yeah, no problem. He said, so what's your plans? I went, I'm just getting my boots. I'm about to go to Leighton Orient. And he said, no, you're not. You're going to be with the first team on Saturday. I was like, what? And it turned out it was Jimmy Nicholl, who was the new manager. So Jimmy come down on his way down from Scotland, 
we was playing at Oldham, he stopped and watched the game, thought I'd done really well. And then from that time, from that to the end of the season, I was I didn't play, but I was in the first team squad training with the first team. Then he gave me a three-year deal. The year after, again, another bit of luck. Now, when I, when I talk about luck, we... So I got my debut at right wing back. I've never played right back. I was in centre midfield. The first team got beat 3-0 on a Saturday and Jimmy called a proper game, first team v reserves, on the Monday at the Den. And uh, the right back didn't turn up. It was on, meant to be on trial. So they went, anyone want to play right back? And I, I'd had a heavy weekend. So I thought, a bit easier right back than centre midfield. Yeah, I'll play right back. And then... Uh, we beat the first, honestly, with refs and everything, we beat the first team 4 0. I scored one and set two up. So that was on the Monday. So on the Wednesday, Jimmy Nichol gives it, right, why didn't you play? You could, why didn't you tell me you could play right back? I went, no, nah, it's the first time I've ever played there. He said, right, you're playing, you're playing Saturday, right wing back. And then from then on, for the first two years, I was a right back. And it was only when Keith Stevens, the manager who I played with, who was the legend there, become manager, he turned me back into midfield. But Long-winded question, but going back to Mill, it's a, it's a special club. They can, the fans there are so passionate. They can be your best friend or your worst enemy. And I've seen, seen games, I've seen them destroy players. If you, it takes a certain type of player to play for Mill. You've got to be mentally strong because they will abuse you. It don't matter if like you're the, my best mate's Neil Harris. Like he. He'd miss a one-on-one -on -one or he'd not have a great game. He's getting abused, even though he's their favourite player. So you've got to, yeah, you've got to be mentally strong. And the fans are, they are what they say on the tin. They, they want hard work. They want you to, to work hard. But again, sometimes they just, they're a different type. I remember there was one time we was in the championship and we were a young team. We got promoted the year before. Never forget, we played Watford who were Viali's millionaires, if we'd have beat them, we were going top of the championship. So they had a man sent off after 10, 10 minutes. And no, yeah, they, no, we scored. They, we scored after 10 minutes. They had a man sent off after like 20. So we just sat behind the ball. They're passing it between the keeper and everything. Well, we got abused at half-time by the fans because we weren't flying into them. No, I mean... They're coming by the tunnel, throwing stuff at us, calling us everything. And then, again, second half, we, we, we don't listen to the fans. We, we're top of the championship. Like, we're a young team. Went out second half. <laughs> we just sat behind the ball. We scored the second goal, 2-0, and we got booed off. Top of the championship. And, I mean, got untold abuse, booed. Then we're like, unbelievable. Then, like, you fast forward it. Three weeks later, we had a man sent off. We lost one nil. I think we, I don't know who we played. We had a man sent off early. We we know we lost two nil. I think, and we got a stand innovation coming off the pitch because we smashed a few in a tackle. And we had like a, a, a fifteen man brawl and got a stand innovation like singing. So like, is a yeah? They're, they're a weird crowd, but they it is such an intimidating place. I've been there now as an away player and an away coach. And you can see that side of it where it is so intimidating. Like you think, I captain, I captained them, and I was there when Stuart never caught. I was vice captain at twenty-three, and then I coached him with Ian all the way. I left 
before and then I went back there with QPR. Like I've got fans standing up saying they want my kids to die of cancer. And then like, like out the blue, like that's how, and then after the game, they're like fine with you. It's like weird. Like I had a, I had a, my first game against them was with the QPR at Loftus Road. And they had a song. It was, they started the song, I think it was 10 minutes into the game. He'd got bird shit on his head and a lion on his arm. So he's got bird shit on. And I swear to God, they sung it for 80 minutes. Well, maybe more because they sang it all through half time. And then the rest of the players are giving it, oh, fucking like, wow, you're getting a bit out. I went, no, this is them being nice. So, like, of course, like, we, I think we drew one all, clapped them, clapped them afterwards, and then they were fine with me. And then when we played them in the return game in, late on in the season, I think I said, yeah, like, it's great. I don't mind getting abused. I quite like it. By the way, fans, it spurs me on. Well, the next game, the abuse I got from them, it weren't none that friendly stuff. Totally abused. And then, like, after the game, yeah, no problem. Like, it's all part of the game. But there, yeah, as I said, you need to be a certain player's play for me because they, they demand it out of you. Could you see that when teams came to the den that they were shitting themselves in the tunnel when they were getting out to that atmosphere? Yeah, you could see that teams that wouldn't fancy it. Some bigger teams would come down and they they wouldn't fancy it at all. And again, with Millwall, the fans would turn up for the big games. For the big games, they would really turn up. And like you could see during the game, they wouldn't fancy it. Or like even if it went off for a throw-in, players or a corner, some players wouldn't like going and get the ball to take it. So you could really you could really affect them. And the, and the team we had, we had a lot of characters in the team. We played on it. But I, I remember when, when I first broke into the team, there was, there was only three subs at the time, I think it was. And I remember as a team, they used to get the Rothman's yearbook out, the old Rothman's yearbook, because when the team sheet come in, they'd look, they'd look to see if there was a reserve keeper on the bench. And if not, there used to be like high fives going around the dressing room. Yes, because the first corner, you smashed the keeper to try and injure him. And that was the whole mentality. Like, I think that, that year we might have injured about three keepers because they didn't have them on the bench and the players were going the goal. And like, that was part of the mentality of, of the team like growing up. And I remember in the youth team, if you injured a player of the opposition, like, it was celebrated like a goal, like high fives and like, yeah, like, as they're getting stretched off. Like you're literally high fiving over the stretcher. So they... They sort of embraced that culture. Like I'm, I'm a few youth, there were a couple of years above me in the youth team, like Ben Thatcher. Ben Thatcher was a great lad. Mark Beard, Mark Kennedy, Jermaine Wright, like all hard players, all hard players. And it was like installed into you that that was the type of the player they weren't. And maybe that was because the type of player I was. My dad was quite clever to send me down there. But yeah, but it, it, it is a special. Anyone who plays for me and does well, you always have a special place in your heart with the fans and how, how I was with the way I grew up there as a youngster coming through the youth team. You can always go back. And the team that we had there, Sean Dice, Nevercott, Neil Harris, Lucas Neil, Tim Cahill, Paul Eiffel, Stephen Reed, we're all really good friends still and all, all, always keep in contact. And you mentioned those big characters. What were they like inside that dressing room? It was like a Sunday team coming to work every day. And imagine your Sunday team and you have a great laugh and great, like we used to have a fight every, it must've been once a month, there'd be two players fighting because it was so competitive games. Like we used to play, 
uh, like keep balls and stuff. And because it was, we used to, sometimes, I think we, it was harder in training than it was in games. It was like full contact. We'd wear shin pads a lot of the time because it was just, the old v young was as hard as a normal game. Or we'd done England v the rest of the world. In like England. So I used to be a floater being like, because I played, they've done it to me on purpose. I have to play for the rest of the world because of the Canadian passport. But it was serious. And because uh, and back then there was a bit of a drinking culture as well, the way that we grew up, like the older players took us out and like we was at, but we used to, our old manager, Keith Stevens, because he grew up at Millwall, if you was out midweek drinking, if it was more than four people, it was okay. It was team bonding. So you needed five or more to go out. It was team bonding. If it weren't, he was out drinking and he used to find that. So they used to... There'd be some games we'd play Oldham away or something and there'd be 15 of us stay up for a night out in Manchester. There'd be hardly anyone back on the bus. And, uh, and I know people say about that, but you used to get characters. It used to breed team spirit. And yeah, we used to... It was just a great times. It was every day in training, every game, just going. It was like you was playing with your mates because a lot of us all grew up together. It was a brilliant time. I've got to ask you about Sean Dyche. That you've got the, the gravelly voice. He's a great manager. He's just a natural leader. What was he like at that time when you played with him? Do you know what? You speak to Dyche because he'd just come off a bad time at Bristol City. I don't. He went to Bristol City from Chesterfield and that's what he said. He went to Bristol City and... He said there was a lot of posers there and it was all about, there was not a great team spirit and it was all about a bit more money. And he said, he comes to me all and there's a bunch of young wrongans running about every day, trying their nuts off. And he just said he fitted in perfectly because he's a bit of a wrongan himself. So, <laughs> uh, so he'd come in there and he was a bit of the older one as well to have us lot just every day doing what we've done. He, he loved it. He loved it. And he, he, uh, he said he got a few more years out of him. But no, what you see with Dice is what you get is a great bloke. Uh, loves a sweat up. God, he could sweat. He could sweat in the fridge, that lad. He's just sweating all the time. But yeah, he's gone on to be a great manager and yeah, probably one of the best English managers now in the Premier League and, and should get a better job. But because he's ginger and because he's got that gravelly voice, people look past him a little bit. But what he's done at Burnley has been fantastic. Did you ever see him eat Wadhams? I think he had one coming out of his mouth once, but yeah, I don't think he had a choice. Because like, it was a bit like the crazy game where you're burning each other's clothes if they're all full, and I think, uh, yeah, you can't. And he'd try and keep out of the way of that. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on. But yeah, no, I think I've seen a worm come out of his mouth once before. But there, I, that was tame compared to what else was going on down there. So he, he fitted in perfectly. To be fair, when there was a player called Darren Ward, uh, used to play for Watford and people like that and he used to have they called him the Peckham Beckham when he signed because he used to copy every one of Beckham's haircuts and he thought he was a bit of a looker but I've known Maldi for years because he was from the same area where I was from but he had a massive head so we called him Dublin but Daishi was like had a big head as well so what we done when he first signed because he enjoyed himself we said we'd done a head measuring contest and Daishi give it I've got the biggest head at this club so from nowhere, we got every, and we're talking every player before you could go training. And this is why we had Keith Stevens and Mark McGee sort of brought into what we was like. Before training, we was allowed to train, we had to measure your head. So we had the calipers on it. So you go lip, width, depth. 
And then we made up, you had to lie on the ground and put your head on the scales and we'd get out your weight of the scales. And we was all, Dyson's was the biggest head by a mile, but we put down Darren Ward had the biggest head and it devastated him. He couldn't go, but that's, that's the way we like. And uh, I think when Mark McGee first come in, like done brilliant, brilliant up in Scotland, then come to Reading, done well. He sort of tried to stamp out the drinking culture and tried to stop us having our nights out. And we literally went to him, look, don't do that. This team's it's built on that. Just let us go with it. And if it's not working, then you can change it. And so really just used to let us do what we wanted, that side of things, as long as we weren't overstepping the mark discipline-wise. But everyone used to train like thoroughbreds anyway. So, yeah, it was really good. But Daishi, yeah, he did have the biggest head in the club. He's got like a cannibal head. How do you look back in your time at Millwall? Because ultimately it leads to you going to QPR, the club you always wanted to play for. Yeah, it was, I, was, I was lucky in a way because it was a great club to grow up in, Millwall. Like, great memories. But then I left on a Bosman uh, to, to QPR, which was my dream move. And I, 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 I had a couple of moves that I could have gone to. One was Birmingham, who just beat us in the playoff and, and gone up to the Premier League. But it weren't to be a starter, it was to be in the squad because they'd gone up to the Premier League. But then when QPR came in for me, it was all I wanted to... Uh, the reason I kicked the ball, I was, we was fanatics, our family fanatics. And we're, you're talking about the typical t- like kids' bedroom where curtains, wallpaper, carpet, is all QPR. Like, I don't, we didn't miss a game for like three or four years when we was QPR fans. So it was like a dream. So went there, spoke to Ian Holloway, and then took less money. I just got married, just had a kid. And to take this money, you could have been in the Premier League with, with one club. And I'm, I've dropped two divisions to be in League One with QPR. So it was a big decision. And my biggest fear was, what about if I don't have a good time and the fans don't like me? Would that affect my love for the club? But it turned out to be a great decision. And again, I've gone from one team where a load of mates, I went to the other team where... We, we built up a great team spirit and still friends with like, one of the best mates, Kevin Gallon. Then there was Martin Rowlands, Gareth Ainsworth, Lee Cook, Danny Shitu, Clark Carlisle, like characters like that, that still still good friends with now. I've got to ask you about Ian Holloway. Um, for me, a great guy. Last year, I struggled a wee bit with mental health and he sent me a lovely message just saying, look, keep your head up. Um, you clearly love football. I know that things will work out for you. And for me, that just summed him up for the guy that he is. What was he like to work with and what was he like when he was your manager? Brilliant, like, brilliant because he's so caring. And like I always say about Ian Onaway, his best attribute, he's tactically well aware. He's, he's very good tactically, but he's just such a good human being and he's just so honest and he treats everyone the same and what you see is what you get with him and, other people that don't know him we used to think he put it on for the cameras, but he don't. He's like that every day. And for me, it was great for me because we were we were complete opposites, really, because he's a man of... He's been brought up in Bristol where everything is straight and you've got to do it there. And as he said, I'm a bit of a cockney spiv where like, he's ducking and diving. And look, if I have to get a penalty, I'll get a penalty and I'll be happy about getting a penalty where... He's like, no, we've got to do everything. If I'm having to block someone, I'll block someone. If 
if I've got a tread on someone, I would do back then. And it, 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 and he was sort of like complete opposite, where he liked the spirit of the game and he liked to do it there. So we was opposites, but he he was brilliant for us. And it, and again with with Ian, he he let us manage the dressing room. So you've got our big personalities, like I've said, and he didn't really have to discipline anyone because we done it all. We done it all, and we and because I cared about the club so much, it was. It won't work. It was going. I remember from a, the time it hit me is like when they, I got the training kit, and I, I used to buy the training kit all the time, or tracksuits, and you were getting given it. And it was the first program. I was the cover of the of the program on the first game, and I looked at it and I thought, I've got programs at home where you pay to put your face on the program. So, and that and that's when it hit me. Yeah, it's it's playing for my club and. But that and having to get 25 tickets every game for like family because <laughs> every Bertram Bourne is a QPR fan. You get like a members club ticket and you get a kit. So it, I think it used to cost me money playing for QPR with all the tickets. But yeah, it was just, it was a dream. And being at QPR and being in a successful team and being in a promotion team, it, was, it, it just worked out perfect for me. And you mentioned the promotion there. What's it like when you're on a promotion team? Because everyone always says it's easy to play football when you're winning every week and the spirit's incredible when you're winning every week. So I imagine you look back in that as one of the fondest seasons of your career. Yeah, it was. Like, we won the league with me all, but that one, because there, so there was so much pressure on, on me personally because the year before we lost in the playoff final and that was hard to take. But it turned out even if we'd have gone up, we'd have probably gone back in administration because they had so many bonuses for other clubs. So Paul Furlong was on loan from Birmingham. They owed them a bonus for that. Steve Palmer come from Watford. They owed Watford a bonus for that. Kev come from, I think it was for Huddersfield. They owed him a, they owed bonuses if they got promoted to like so many clubs. It would have sent us back. So it worked out better and then we improved the squad. But yeah, it was just... It was weird because like, if we lost at Mill, I'd come in and give it how the QBR get on. And then, so when I was at QBR we lost, it was like everything. And like, if we'd lost two games on the trot, it's like family members that probably don't mean really that what's going on, what's happening. And like, if you're getting 15 calls then like a week, it's like, it just, it builds up. And what added to the pressure as well, going into the promotion, into the last three games, I think it was, especially the last two games, the chairman told me, look, we can't afford to keep you if we don't go up. So I was like, oh, brilliant, cheers. I had, I had to, uh, bits of the pressure where we had Swindon at home, who were third in the league, and then we had Sheffield Wednesday away at Illsworth to, to go up. So really added pressure knowing I'm not going up. And added pressure as well, Neil Warnock was manager of Sheffield United, he was trying to sign for Sheffield United. So he's ringing me up, giving it, yeah, you're not going up, come sign for me at Sheffield United, it'll make you a better player. And even run, we had Sheffield Wednesday away, last game of the season, and the phone's gone in the hotel room, and I've picked it up, and it was Neil Warnock. And he's giving it, look, I'm, that's how much I want you. I'm coming tomorrow to Sheffield Wednesday to watch you lose so I can sign you. And he, and he went, uh, have a stinker, hope you have a bad game, and then put the phone down. So, yeah. So, luckily, we won. But, yeah, and then... Funny enough, I ended up working for Neil when he come back to QBR. But yeah, it was it was just everything that day at Hillsford to get promoted. 
of course you want to win the league or you want to win it at home or you, the best way to win it's in the playoff but the next one was winning it at Hillsborough because we had 8,000 QPR fans there and you're waiting to win it there and for for to do it the way we done and I remember just finding a whistle I pat cashed it up to the top of the to the stand where the family was and it was just really emotional and a great day and then yeah, I think the whole team, I think we was drunk for about a week after that. We kept going, they like, booked an open tour, open top tour bus of Shepherd's Bush, but we booked to go to Dublin for three days. So they had to, they had to cancel that and, and delay it another week. <laughs> oh, brilliant. One of the players I want to ask you about is Danny Shittu, because Kevin Kyle, um, he obviously former Scotland player, did an interview and he said that when he played against somebody like Shittu, he would talk to himself in the tunnel and really G himself up and... He was quite an intimidating guy. What did you find him like? Yeah, he's a great, like, Danny's a gentle giant who's got a, he's got a bad temper, but I think we helped Dan, and, and because the way Danny is, I think he was trying to become a better footballer. I mean, like, Dan, just focus on your strengths. Massive. You can hit the ball. It's, he had the biggest fires I'd ever seen in a play. He had to get short, especially made back then, because, honestly, his fires would sweat two of mine together and they he's never done a weight in his life it's just all natural that's to stop him doing weights because they thought right he's 70 he's done with pure muscle quickest in the team he was then quickest in the team and he's never done a weight if he starts doing weights he's going to get too big like we we shared training ground with Wasps who were European champions at the time and Warren Gatlin was their head coach and every training session you'd see him with an arm around Danny Shooter trying to talk him into playing rugby and Danny was just like, how much do you earn? No, no, so I, I'll stay playing rugby. Uh, stay playing football. But yeah, they, he, he was a great lad. And one story I tell about Dan, that promotion year, we played Bournemouth away. And he's gone up for Edda. And they had a big Fletcher. Fletcher, was it Steve Fletcher? Yep. Played yep. up front for Bournemouth. He used to tie his like, sleeves up like that. And he's gone up for Edda and they've landed. And they've gone and scored after 10 minutes and Danny's rubbing his knee. And so all through the first half, Danny's rubbing his knee. And I'm like, Danny, stop fucking rubbing your knee. Get on with it. Like, you're embarrassing. And, like, and then we get into the changing room and then I've lost it a bit with Dan because he's icing his knee. I'm like, Dan, take that ice off your knee. Look at the size of you. Start manning up for God's sake. And we've gone out there. I think we end up drawing the game. Come in, he's icing his knee again, and I'm like, like we got to toughen up. We need to get promoted. Blah blah blah. He went for a scan on the Monday. He ruptured all his cruciates, but because ruptured, gone, and I was like, what? And even the physio was like, but because his thighs and hamstrings were so big, he he played 80 minutes with no cruciate in his knee, and he's like, oh, I think I can play the rest of the season. And they're like, because there was only about 10 games that they went, no, no, you got any had, had, had the operation. But yeah, he played 18 minutes of a game with no crucial, unbelievable. Most people would be doubled up in pain on a, on a stretcher. But yeah, they said, because his hamstrings and thigh muscles and everything was so strong, he got away. Being a big character like you are, Mark, and being a QPR fan, did that make, that you talked there about Danny with his knee, did that make you demand the highest possible standards from every one of your teammates, even more so than ever? Yeah, definitely. No, it, it, I know footballers say it don't matter how they play, it's all about the result. And that's a load of bullshit, really. I think players like to play well if they like to score. But honestly, with QPI, it was all about the result. And, and what helped is that 
Kevin Gallant was there as well, who was a massive QPR fan. And it, 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 we, de we demanded high standards, as we said, Martin Road and Gareth Ainsworth come in with the work ethics. And a bit like Mill, where the recruitment had to be right, where you had to get a mentally strong player. Again, I think if you speak to me in Holloway and people at the club, when they recruited players or was looking to sign players, they always thought, right, are the group going to accept them or are they going to fit in the group? Because if they didn't, then we wouldn't have them in the group because we were such a tight-knit group and we demanded that you work hard. So you couldn't come in and not, not work. So we did. We, as, as we said, like uh, the, uh, all the best clubs or the best teams that I've been with or I've known, the dressing room, polices itself and that's what we done we had our own rules we had we, we made Ian Holloway sign a contract with us that we was allowed one night out a month no matter how the results to go in for team bonding he would make it up by running running nuts off us the, that the same day which is worse now because you think now drinking dehydrates you so what they they would de dehydrate us by running us to, before we went out so if there was any carnage it was their fault looking back on it but uh yeah, and as we said, like normally when you win, you get a good team spirit. But to stay friends afterwards, it shows like real, real team spirit and friendship. And we are, we've still been friends, and we look back on it as the, probably the best time of our lives. And in terms of Loftus Road, what I like about it is the fact that it's a small ground, but it's it's a unique football ground. It's a classic. It's a throwback. When you look at these stadiums, the Tottenham Stadium, the Arsenal Stadium, all, yeah. all be, they're big bowls, they're impressive, but they lack character for me, whereas Loftus Road is a true football ground. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. And look, as a club, to move forward, they need a new ground because of hospitality and all that. But for me, it'd be a, a sad, sad day because not being biased, it's one of the best atmospheres you get because it's all enclosed and right on the pitch. We played, a, we had a semi-final against Oldham, playoff semi-final, and like my dad's been going absolutely years since he was like a teenager, and you speak to QPR fans, that night, the atmosphere that night was the best you've ever, like you could feel it on the pitch because the, the, the noise of it and the atmosphere and... Yeah, it'd be a sad day because it's going to have to go because modern-day football clubs now, you need 24-7 events to, to be there and you need money coming in. But as you said, it's a, it's a, it's a great one. And I remember what... Actually, I've, you played on there when you were schoolboys and stuff and I never actually played against QPR. I remember there was one time at Mill, we had an FA Cup replay and if we got through, we played QPR. I think... And then I remember like, the manager, Mark McGee, was giving it, I bet you're buzzing for, to play. You want to play QPR? I was like, no, I don't. I never want to play against them. And it was like, what? I said, no, no, I support them. I never want to play against them. And I always said, look, if we was ever in the league and they needed to win to go up, we had nothing to play for, I wouldn't play. And he was like, what? I went, no, 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 I couldn't do that. I'm not one of them players that, oh, I really want to play against my club. I went to score against QBR and it, like, done, like Dennis Law done to Man U, where he back heeled it and scored and relegated him. I could never do that. I said, I just wouldn't play. And he was like, what? No. But yeah, but again, that goes back to the story of growing up as a kid. But like me and my brother always said, look, if we, if we grew up and played for QBR, we'd die our hair blue and white. So that's where the haircut come from because never thinking you're probably going to play for QPR when you get older. So like when I signed for QPR, my brother went, 
what about that bit we had? And then I was like, yeah, yeah. I went, because I had quite long hair at the time before I cut it. And then we had, we went to an army camp. And then I was saying to Kev, I was arguing with Kev, who, who was the bigger QPR fan. And then it was me because he wasn't allowed to go to away games. So I used to go to away games. And I bet him 250 quid that I'll dye my hair blue and white, which he's never paid me since. But yeah, so I dyed it blue and white. And that was for the first game. And in my first four games, I got three bookings and a red. So Holloway's like, look, Birch, I think you might have to change the barnet because it's getting you a bit of attention off the ref. So I was like, yeah, changed it. Dyed it back to normal. And then I used to get letters from kids and parents saying they dyed their hair. They've, one of them's got suspended from school. Like, and so I put little bits back in. And then just by luck, I got sponsored. Like, Swartzcroft paid me a decent bit of money to, to dye it blue and white. And in the second year, Fudge, Air company sponsored me, and it was like one photo shoot. And they used to fly the hairdresser year down from Scotland at the time if they ever wanted my hair done. So they fly, they're, they're flying down, cut, do me hair. We'd be Norwich away, so the lads used to get their hair cut as well. So it was good then. But then my brother, I was best man at my brother's wedding, and then his wife asked me, "Look, the colours are gold. Don't really go with blue and white. Can you change it back?" So I was like, "Yeah." So I dyed it back to normal. And don't worry, it was, it was nice to have normal hair because you didn't even have to be a football fan. Or, or if, even if you're a away fan, you, there's only one person that had blue and white mohawk. So you're going down the road, I'm getting abused by Chelsea fans, Brentford fans, wherever I went. So when I went back to normal, it was nice not to get abused. <laughs> and see, in terms of playing in the championship with Millwall, QPR, who were the sort of toughest opponents you came up against in midfield? There was when Black Blackpool was, we had a, a tough opponent for Black Gary Brabin. I don't know if you know him. He ended up yep. managing. Little, he was, I think, he used to be a doorman before. So, like, he he was tough. I remember I went shoulder to shoulder with him, and I ended up about thirty yards away one time. Uh, who else? Is tough as in playing against Ali Benabi was tough. He was a good player for Man City, but so. I couldn't get near him in the first game. So the second game, I got him sent off after 10 minutes. So that was my job done. Brilliant. But I pinched his elbow and like, he elbowed me in the face. So dumb and the nose started bleeding. He, was, he got sent off. So yeah, you can't beat them. Find another way of getting them off. So he, he was really good. Uh, Morrison. Was it Andy Morrison for Man City? There was two people for Man City. I'd, normally I'd wind up anyone. But there was two for Man City. It was Stuart Pearce, who I didn't wind up. I thought, I'll leave him alone. And the other one was Andy Morrison, a big centre-back. It was like, nutter. So I kept away from him. They, they were probably the two that I kept away from. At Stoke, we had, like, you can look on the internet. I think it was a battle with Britannia where we fought. We had a fight with Stoke in the tunnel. And they all kicked off. And they were massive. They, uh, Jerry, Jerry Taggart started on me because I... Funny enough, got him sent off. He elbowed me in the face. But yeah, that all kicked off. So I, I would say toughest, as in playing against Ali Benabi, was really good. You know, I couldn't get near him. You seem like the sort of guy, Mark, if you don't mind me saying, that just does not tolerate big-time Charlies in a dressing room. See, when you played against a player that was maybe full of themselves or thought they were something, is that the sort of player you'd love to bring back down to earth? Oh, yeah. No, no, I used to love keeping people. There's another one where... We played Forest one time, and David Johnson, the centre forward, he went, "Look at you, 
cheap. He said something like cheap, like, look at you, for four grand a week players. I went, four, four, we ain't on four grand a week here at Millwall. I'm on, I'm on less than half of that. I'll take that four grand a week if you're offering it. I do. And then, like, because at Millwall, we was at just, you know, when you're at clubs and you come through a youth system, you never get the good contracts. It's always, like, keep you down. So, just, yeah, not, nothing big time. We didn't like the big time players. And then the best thing about it was, with, with QPR and Millwall, we, we created a culture where if, if he was, like we had Tony Thorpe come with us and he had that bit of arrogance about him, but he fitted in the group because he was, he was a bit of a wrong one, but he was a, he was a good wrong one because he used, to, he used to sulk and kick off a bit, but he used to work hard when he was in training. So it don't matter if you, if you was big time, that, that's part of your personality, but you've got to produce it on the pitch. But luckily we didn't have that when we was at both clubs. But yeah, as long as you worked hard, don't matter what you've done really for us. Because I always think, and I don't know personally, but you look at the likes of Robbie Savage, he seems like the sort of guy that you would love to have yeah. against. Yeah, no, I know people have said that before. We was the type of players you'd love to hate type thing. So, like, the away fans used to normally start me. And that's another reason Neil Warnock wanted to sign me. He said, I want to sign you because I think you'll take the attention off the fans more than me. They hate you more than me. I was like, oh, cheers, Neil. Thanks a lot. Thanks for that one. Uh, yeah, and to be fair, Robbie was a better player than uh, people gave me credit for. And I think a lot of the time as well, I was probably, I was a better passer than people give me credit for because I used to love like getting involved and running around tackling and stuff. It sort of gets over a bit like Vinnie Jones. Vinnie Jones was a, a lot better player than people gave him credit for. He, okay, he wasn't like Premier League top top Premier League class, but he was still a good player when he was younger. And I think that's the same with Robbie Savage. You look at him; he's he, he's a good player, but again, he liked to get involved and wind people up. See when it came to leave QPR as a player what was that like for you was that a really hard moment well I strangled the chairman so I could that was like about three months before so I sort of knew it was on the cards <laughs> uh, again I think that started with when they sacked Ian Holloway so they, they well they they sort of didn't sack him he went and spoke to Leicester because they asked permission to speak to him this is with the the Italian Gianni Palladini, who I end up being friends with. Like, because Leicester come in and asked to speak to Ian Holloway, they gave him permission to speak to Leicester. So he went to speak to Leicester, and then he come back and said, no, I don't want the job. He went, no, 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 you spoke to him, we're sacking you. You cheated on us. And so they put him on gardening leave. So then they brought Gary Waddock in as first team manager, and I had to do a press conference at Loftus Road, which I refused to do because... I didn't think it was right. If you're going to sack him, sack him. Don't put him on garden leave. Everything be done. So then a bit of tension played there. And then uh, John Gregory was manager. I think we played the Wolves on the Tuesday night. And I'd been out with hamstring injury. And John Gregory really liked me. So I think I trained one day. I've been out three weeks of hamstring injury. Trained one day. He put me in against Wolves, who were like up the top of the table. And it, and it was nil-nil. And then my hamstring was getting really tight. So I was only meant to play like, I think it was 70 minutes. It's got to the 85th minute. And I, I could feel that I was going to pull my hamstring again. So I've had to come off. Anyway, they scored the last minute balls. And the chairman put in the programme the next day in his notes, 
our great performance against Wolves, shame the, the so-called QPR fan couldn't stay on the pitch to see the job through. So I'm reading this, I'm like, what? And so we had Luton in the cup. So I was sub because of my hamstring and I was only going to be used if needed. Anyway, come on. And I got man the match. So I've said to the manager, John Gregory, I, he's up first, don't do anything. I'll speak and sort it out on Monday. It's like, no problem. So I'm all calm. But to get the man the match, you had to go up the lift to go to the suite to get your man the match. And it's opened up on the chairman who's standing there. And he goes, oh, you don't, you don't have to do anything to win man the match. It's all your friends and family. So now I've lost it. So I've gave it right. You're ruining this club. And I've, looking back, probably wasn't the best decision. It was in front of his family. They were screaming. I've just choked him. So I'm strangling him outside the chairman's suite. And now the security's involved. I'm giving it, you're ruining this club. And I'm, I'm choking him. So then I get called in the office on Monday. And John Gregory sits down and gives it, so Birch, could we have handled it a little bit better, do you think? And I was like, yeah, but it feels good. And, and he was like, look, I was trying to get you a new, new deal. It ain't going to happen now. I said, yeah, no, no, I know that now. I said, look, I need a back operation. So I might as well get my back operation done now because it's going to be a few months. They said six months, but so I had my back operation done. I thought that was it. I wouldn't play a game for QPR. But in the end, I'm like, I'm going to work rehab. I'm going to get back. And literally, I got back here. I think, I think it took three months for me to get back and I played the last game against Stoke. So, and I think the chairman was telling him not to play me. I'd come on for the last, I think it was 20 minutes. So I, I, the writing was on the wall, but um, I agreed to go to LA Galaxy then. So that's probably why she's my ex-wife now, because my wife at the time was, was pregnant with my daughter and she didn't want to go. So I had all agreed with Galaxy. My old Canadian manager, Frank Yellow, was manager. I think he was signing me just to keep Beck's company, really, because Beck's was coming in November. It's a, it's a, it's a London voice. Come on, I was going to sign. So I was buzzing. I was moving to Galaxy. I was leaving. I didn't want to leave QBR, but I couldn't play against QBR. I didn't really want to play against, for another English team. So all agreed. And then she refused to go. So... I've come back and it was coming to the season. I, I ended up signing a really good financial deal for me at Yeovil, and my, which I knew would, I mean, I think my heart weren't in it really. And as a player, we're, we're playing for Mill and QPR, it weren't playing, it was just like a dream. To then nearly go LA Galaxy and then ended up at Yeovil, I think my body just gave up. And then I ended up injuring my ankle and then retired on that one. I think it was about six months into it. And then, yeah. So that was that. Did you ever foresee that you'd be back at QPR in a coaching role so soon after leaving? Uh, yeah, I did. I did because I took my... Ian, Ian Holloway really got me into my coaching badges because you could see I, I knew the tactical side of it. And I started my coaching badges at, I think it was 25. So uh, I'd, done, I'd done all the badges. And then when I retired, I had my pro licence. I, I completed my pro licence at 30, 31. So I had it. And then, funny enough, uh, through a mutual friend, Val, I say thank you, he got us together, me and the old chairman that I strangled, Gianni, sat us down, and then that's when he, that's when he gave me the youth team job, and I'd, I'd, I'd come back. So, did I think I'd, be, I'd come back under that chairman? No. But, yeah, I, I always thought I'd come back at QBR coaching and, 
and that, and that was then. So yeah, me, me and Johnny still friends now, even after choking. So <laughs> I've got to ask you about the, the four year plan. I interviewed um, Joey Barton, um, and all he came kind of after that, and yeah, Joey came after that. <laughs> speaking about QPR being a sort of madhouse now, when you look at before we come to Joey's either, when you look at that four year plan documentary, I spoke to Peter Ramage about this. It seemed as if you had a new manager every five minutes. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, you knew that someone was getting sacked because the cameras used to turn up. So someone was getting sacked, whether it was a staff member, a player, <laughs> someone was getting sacked. And but my friends done the documentary, so adult films and, and Matt, would, but they were the ones that done it. And, uh, and luckily, I said, look, I don't want to be in it because the, the one game that I managed with Steve Gallon was in there. And the funniest thing... Bria Tori had final edit of anything. So anything you see in the four-year plan is what he thinks is good. So you can imagine what's on the editing floor. I remember when we played against West Brom, so Jim McGilton got sacked a few days before for uh, supposedly headbutting Akers Bazaki. They just went head-to-head, it weren't a headbutt. And he pushed him away and Akers, it was at Watford. And then outside the Watford dressing room, he's at the press and the press is there while he's giving it, oh, he's headbutting me. So they got rid of Jim Majult and they're like, oh, Birch, you've got to take the team. So we've just been beat by Watford. I think it was like three or four one. And then we've got West Brom at the top of the league live on Sky. So it's like me and Steve Gallon who are taking the team. We're like, oh, I've got. So done, this is all on the all on film, it didn't make it. So I was doing an interview, I think, for Sky. I come in the room. So now Flavio's got us in the room. So Flavio wants us to pick his team. And I'm looking at, he's got Alberto, this, Alberto, a player that's, he signed from Italy, that's useless, I mean, horrendous. He wants him to play. Pellicori, and I'll quote his words, can score goals with his dick. That's how good he is. So I'm like, <laughs> so straight away I'm like, I don't know many centre forward score with a dick, but he can't score with his feet. But so he's, so he wants to play Pellicori. So, Anyway, we managed talking round to playing the team exactly what we wanted. Now it's his idea. And then he says, oh, yes. And he was, Johnny's there as well. And he's saying to Johnny, what, what happened with the team in Italy? What happened? Oh, yeah. So, like, at the end of the game, he said, we need to make subs and waste time. Okay, yeah, I can do that. No problem. He said, and if we're winning, it happened in Italy, I want you to go down holding your chest and then all the doctors come there and then there's only a minute left so they're done and we're I'm like well, hold on a minute my one and only game in charge of my childhood club you want me to fake a heart attack and they're like no 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 not heart attack no 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 chest pains chest pains and I'm like yeah, I'm going to have to think about that one, but leave it with me. We'll see what we can do. So we've, we're playing West Brom away. We're playing with, now. They're above the, the director's box above the, the dugout. So uh, first goal kick, Radic churning the goalie, kicks the ground, does his ankle, and the ball bobbles out. Luckily, they miss. So now he can't take goal kicks. I'm giving it... Uh, I imagine my first start being better than this as a manager. And then we go 1-0 up. And then I hold out 12 times, doing two new up in the second half. So now it's about 60 minutes. He's shouting, 
Cambio, 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 change, change, wants socks. So, Pelicori, bring Pelicori. Oh, for fuck's sake, I'll bring Pelicori on. So, we bring Pelicori on. Anyway, that, they get another goal, 2 1. So, it's got, now it's the 95th, 95th, 96th minute. Those six minutes of added time. Ali Fallin's gone through. He should probably run it in the corner. But he's played Pelicorian and he's running in the box. So it's to the left of the box. So just run it in the corner. Game over. Like we've won. He's had a shot with his weaker foot. Keepers caught it. Who was it? Dean Kylie booted it up the other end. Flick on. Simon Cox goal to all. And I mean, final whistle. So we think. Uh, so disappointed, but they've just been beat fight 4-1 the game before. So come in the dressing room, we're like, lads, we know, but God, we'd have taken that before the game. A draw at West Brom live on TV, we'd take that. Then next thing you know, boom, the door comes open. Bring a Tories there with Gianni and Gianni. And so now he's got the Pelicori. And now he's, you can tell he's swearing at the Italians. They, they, the arms are going over to And then he goes up, well done, well done, well done. Out the door. So this is all on camera. So I went to Ali Falling. Ali Falling's decent with his English. Ali, what did he say? He went, oh, that you'll never play for this club again. You're crap. And I hope your house sets on fire because you're too slow to run out, so you would die and burn. You'll never play for me again. You're shit. And then he walked out. I was like, oh, hopefully they've got subtitles for that. That might make good viewing. So, yeah. So, there's so much on there that didn't make it. Like, there was another time in, to be fair, Ian Dowie. Ian Dowie was managed with Man United away in the League Cup. And Flair, Beatore is telling him to play this team. And he went, okay. So he went out and done the pattern of play. Didn't put his team in there. Come in. Before he come in, he sat to Ian Dowie. And then went upstairs and said, oh, yeah, we're playing this team. That man knew. We, uh, Gareth Ainsworth, you can take the team. Right. Like, but I mean, there's some ridiculous stuff that didn't make it on there. But it, looking back, it's aged quite well. Because as the first sort of fly on the ball, Documentary at football, it was, it was really, it was really good. And my mate, it was my mate's company, so it done well. But I made sure, so I think that's how it's going to turn out. I made sure I was never in any of it. But I wish back now, I wish they could have put some of that in. Well, that's the thing. It's like, <clears throat> see the fact that you're saying Bria Tory had final edit and he put half of that stuff in. What a fucking lunatic! No, that's the, that's the stuff he thinks. Right, that looks good. That looks good. Yeah, keep that in. Like unbelievable. And in terms of the team, now, he basically, did he ever consider appointing himself as a manager? No, because you'd have to spend a bit of time there. He liked coming in. And, and you had him and Bernie. Like Bernie Eccleston was there and he sort of interested and weren't interested. And I remember some, I remember some fans and this didn't make it on there because like he weren't giving any money for the transfer budget. And I think he just bought his both daughters like thirty-five million pound houses in London, and then to keep our fans abusing him, giving it Bernie, you don't, you don't want to put any money in, you don't seem interested, blah blah blah. And he turned around and went, "Well, they put like this. Every time I go to a Formula One race, I make twenty million. 
every time I come here, I lose money. Which one's more important? So it was like, okay then. And the fans were using that, that, that didn't make it. But yeah, uh, it was just such a weird time. And then, then they, so we, like Neil Warnock's got us promoted. And then we literally couldn't spend any money. Like physios are, are buying strappings. We were buying waters on our own, own cards to try and claim, because he was selling the club. So we just cut all spending. And we're, we're about to play in the Premier League. So it was like weird. And Tony Fernandez come in with, like, I get on well with Tony, but he just was naive when it comes to football and wasted so much money and made so many mistakes that way. It's, it's hard to, to get back. Like, they, they could have probably done another documentary on what's happened since with the players. I've got to ask you about Adele. When I spoke to Peter Ramage, he said, just a guy who had so much ability, but just very strange character and strange body shape considering how good he was yeah the, 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 the probably the best individual skill talent I've ever seen and he could go to Barcelona and probably fit in with him skill wise well you look we loaned him he loaned from QPR to AC Milan and kept Kakarot so this is a player with ability and strangely enough we got on really well I still speak to Adele now and I say to him like if you'd have like he's like holding midfielder or centre midfielder at Benfica, doing really well. I see him tackling and stuff, and I'm, he, I say if he'd have had that in the Premier League, he'd been he could have played there in the top top side. But he was just a maverick, and it was just his work rate was poor. But look, when we got promoted, we had sixty five percent possession. He scored twenty, set up twenty two. When we went up to the Premier League, our possession went down to thirty five percent. So. There's no point Adele being on the pitch, defending-wise. It's all about him having the ball. And, yeah, but that's, that's how bad we got. Adele was like the rogue. And Neil Warnock, and people can say what he wanted as a manager, a genius stroke. I would have never, ever thought of making him captain. He made him a captain without actually being a captain. But, and it got the best out of Adele, his ability. Like, you see, that season is the best season I've seen from an individual I'd ever seen when we got promoted. But... Again, like you can only do it for a certain amount before it catches up with you. And I think Adele now, in his older age, I think he, he looks back and regrets. And if he were, you look at his body now, how, how well he, keep, he treats himself and how well he's doing at Benfica. And uh, it's not a small club, Benfica, but I think he could have been even better than what he's, he's doing now. Following on from the four-year plan time, there's the time, obviously, Neil Warnock's manager, Harry Redknapp's manager, Mark Hughes, as well, obviously, in that time scale. As I say, I've interviewed Joey Barton, and Joey does not hold back on his time at the club, as I'm sure you're aware. Well, Joey, 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 Joey I, I, I used to have to take the reserves, or the bomb squad, as it was known, and Joey was in there. We had won some of the most, most expensive reserves, I think, we've ever had. We had Lloyd Remy was in there one time, MBA, Granero, Jason Park, uh... Gabriel Sisse, Joey Barton, Luke Young. Uh, who else was in that bomb squad? Tommy Smith was in that bomb squad. Uh, yeah, could just reel them off. That, that, that was the reserves. How do, you, how do you handle those guys when they come to the reserves? A keeper on a five-a-side, get on with it. I can't go to them. They don't want to be there, do they? Like, so... I think Julio Cesar was in the reserves at one time. Yeah, he's on 100 grand a week, he was at QPR. So, like, these players in the reserves. And, but I always, I always, and still get on well with Joey. 
yes, he's got that side of him, but he's a winner. He wants to do well and he wants it to be done well. So I think he signed for QPR for the wrong reasons because I think he wanted to go to a better club, but he signed because it was such a good financial deal. Yep. So maybe that in the back of his mind, he was, he always regretted it, but done it for financial reasons. Well, as you but, say, when, when he was on the show, he, he talked about the, an incredible signing on fee that he got. He said at Newcastle United, he was on very good money, close to a hundred grand. He says, and then at QPR, they, they put it up to astronomical levels. And he went, and as you've said, he did say, I made the move for money and it's the only time I've ever really done it and I regret it. But at the same time, the money on offer was just obscene. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and I think Joey would always be a good manager as long as he could control the other side of it and he's showing that he, he can. And I like Joey. To be fair, I was the one that took him off the pitch at Man City when he started the Falklands War game on his own with Aguero and, uh, and Tevez. And... Uh, yeah, that was a crazy day as well. But um, again, I made him right. I think Sammy Nasri come and celebrate in our dressing room because him and Jibril Sisse were the best players. He's like, get out of here. It's got nothing to do with you. Go celebrate in your own dressing room. And same on the coach. And like that's something I would do and I can relate to with Joey because Joey is a winner. Which, whatever you say about him, he is a winner and he wants, wants it to do well. So that's the, what I speak about. And then uh, that's why I'd always defend him, even like people like Sean Wright Phillips. Sean Wright Phillips at the club, and he's in the reserves, and, and people have a go at him. But you can't have a go at him because it's not his fault that he was put on that contract and money, and then he wasn't fancied by the new manager. So you can't just want, expect him to give up his money and walk away. But every day with Sean Wright Phillips, different to other players at QPR, every day he come in, smile on his face, wanting to train. And that's all you can do as the players. It's the players that sulk and don't want to get involved. If if a new manager comes in and, and don't fancy you as a player, don't, you can't take it out on them players, especially with the fans. So, uh, trust me, we had a lot of other wrong. Sam Adikia, he signed a new deal, doubled his money, and then wouldn't turn up to pre-season because a witch doctor put a spell on him. So, yeah, we had that. We had a player refusing to train because he, he weren't mentally right because he hadn't had sex. That was another one, yeah. Uh, what was the other one? We've had a couple of crazy ones. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there was a few in that in that time. So, yeah, the witch doctor put a spell on him was a good one. And then he wanted the club. He couldn't pay for the witch doctor to take the spell off. The club had to pay to take the, the spell off. So, yeah, that old, that old one. I've tried it before. I thought I might try that later on. I tried that with Mark Hughes. And the witch doctors put a spell on me. I can't come in for a couple of weeks. Can you pay? <laughs> I've got to ask you about <clears throat> Harry Redknapp. Another guy I've been, I've been lucky enough to interview, Harry. Um, big character. What I found telling about, again, that's just Joey's perspective when he was on the show, where it t- towards the end, Joey recalls that Harry just not being his usual self and being as chirpy as he normally is and, Joey and a few others going in and saying, look, boss, you need to do this, this and this. We need Because you've got it. But right now, nobody likes you at the club, which he was dead shot. He was very shocked by. But then obviously turned it around. Bobby Zamora, playoff final, the magic moment. Yeah, well, I think Harry, I think it was his knee was getting him down. He was dead, had really bad knees, struggling to walk and stuff. And you're thinking, like, keep yard, that. That team, or the budget for that team, I think was five million more than Borussia Dortmund. It's the record amount a, a squad has been put together for in the championship when he was in the playoffs. So, we're probably underachieving there. 
and again with Bobby Zamora, he was the most hated QPR player I can remember. He used to get booed warming up. He couldn't warm up. He used to get booed. And then that's in football. Towards the end, towards the end of the season, gets in the team, does all right in the playoff semi against Wigan and then scores the winner in the final. And then, now he's loved. But you speak to Bob, he was hated at QPR. Probably the most hated I can remember. And, and, and the thing with Harry, as I said, towards the end, I think it was his knee that was really playing him up, that was getting him down. And then we got promoted and then... He didn't do it the next year in the Premier League and he moved on. But the thing with Harry, is a great character. And I think you, you see him now. It's the best thing. He could have gone in the jungle. People see what personality he is. And now he's loved by, by the public. I don't think he'd get back in football. I think he's quite enjoying that life. What was it like when Rio Ferdinand came to QPR? Because I think, in hindsight, he probably regrets the move because he was, he was coming towards the end and he probably didn't need to play another season. But his relationship with Harry probably helped get that over the line. What was it like in and around the club? Yeah, well, I'd, I'd just left there. I left to join in all the way and become assistant manager at Millwall. But what people don't know about Rio, Rio started at QPR. That was his first club. So me and Rio was in the same... So to be fair, we had a decent midfielder under 14 and 15. It was me, Rio and Nigel Quasi. So <laughs> you, can, you can tell I was the the dog in centre midfield with them two playing. So, yeah, that was that was our centre midfield at under-14s and 15s. And then Rio went to West Ham. And I think the thing with Rio, with which people know now his wife weren't well at the time, so he moved back down to, to London. And again, with Rio, it was Harry was there. It was the club he started at. It was moving closer back to London. And when you're that good a player and you're, your legs do go a bit. He realised it went early doors and he, he didn't have it. So, yeah, I, I think he wipes out his memory, Rio, with the, the, the way the football went there. But, again, a great guy. And you speak to the lads at, at QPR, he, his, his personality and how he wanted things done and how he expects stuff is a different level to probably what it was then. But he uh, always wanted to help the youngsters. That's a good thing with Rio now and uh, just a great guy. You mentioned the fact you go to Millwall, you've coached there, coached at Chicago Fire, coached out in Arizona, back at QPR as well as first team coach for a spell. How do you look at your coaching career and what have you learned through working at different clubs and in, even in different cultures, really? Yeah, uh, great, for me, great decision going abroad to coach, just to uh, widen, your, widen your horizons on coaching, how you see players and how you can adapt to players. Uh, Again, with Canada, coach with the national team, them the national setup, just coach Alfonso Davis for the under 18s now, who's at Ryan doing really well, and cut at QPR now is coaching Reem Sterling when we sold him to Liverpool, two of the probably best young talents growing up, and you see that. But for me, they're not success stories because. They've got their natural ability. You can only guide them. It's the it's the lads that have probably been released from other clubs at 16 that ain't got a, a chance. And you see them and you bring them through. And we've, we've had so many, when I was at QPR, people like Max Ema that people didn't. And he's ended up getting 350 games in league football. And you've got people like Lee Brown, who's now, he just played for Portsmouth in the, in the playoff semi-final, he's got 400 league games. And like the players like that, and the, the, there's so many. That with Michael Harriman, he won the player final for Northampton and he wasn't 
wanted by anyone really. We, we had him at QPR and we brought him all the way through and he's got a, he's got a career out of the game and he's played like nearly nearly 250 league games. So for me, I see them as successes of coaching. And then going abroad for the MLS, it just, as I said, it opens up new horizons, new doors and how big the MLS is getting. Uh, I don't, for, for a coach, I'm still quite young really as well, 42, so hopefully there's a bit more in there. And then that's why now with the Bahamas, it, it, there's a bit of a project I can see going on, which, I, which I'm looking forward to doing. And it opens up the international coaching scene as well. So it, it, to be a coach, you need plenty of strings to your bow. And then who, who, where it'll end up, who knows, especially now with what's happened in the world. How, how football's going to be the, the lay of the land might be completely different in the next year or so and then football has to pick itself back up and then you never know what opportunities come then Before I finish we around a quick fire questions Neil has told me I've got to ask you the snake story Oh the snake story you can see it on all groups so uh, again with Canada so funny enough qualified for Canada because my granddad was born there and probably lived there about four months or something like that so I actually got called up for Wales because they thought they were my family were builders and then they come back and they read the first port court was Wales where they was building but it turned out I weren't Welsh thank god and then I've ended up uh they said oh your granddad was born in Winnipeg not in Wales which you already knew and then luckily Canada said you want to play for us like, okay then and then so the snake story, it was Olympic qualifiers in Philadelphia. I had a broken ankle, so I couldn't play. I was at Millwall. But the lads were that bored. They all chipped in together to fly me out there, just to lighten it up a little bit. So by the time I got to the hotel in Philadelphia, Hershey, so it's Amish country, you know, like they're farmers there. So it's round there. They've got nothing to do. And then I got into my room, and when I got in there, everything was upside down. TV, bed, so... The, their lads thought it was funny. So I was like, next day at breakfast, yeah, funny, that was great. And it was the day off. So it was me and Jimmy Brennan who used to play left back for Norwich and Forest. I've, I've hired a wheelchair now just for a bit of banter because my leg's in plaster. We're going past that and we go past the pet shop. So there's a big snake in the window. We're like, yeah, we're going to buy that. What are you going to do with a snake? Oh, we'll find something. So I think it was like, Quite expensive. I mean, it's about eight hundred dollars. So we said to get come here for the snake. Yeah. What about if I don't like it? If we bring it back, he said, "Oh, if you bring it back, you can have half your money back." Like, Brilliant. So get this big snake. Got it in the box. It's about eight foot, I think it was. Boa constrictor. So when we got back to the hotel, Paul Saltieri, Blake, who was at Tottenham. Yeah. I mean, petrified the snakes, and him in about. Six others are in the room playing cards. So I opened up the door. I went, lads, great bit of banter. Don't play with fire, you'll get burnt. When it comes to, when it comes to pranks, it, we're the daddies. Threw it on the floor. And they thought it was a fake snake. So they've come and went to get the snake. And then it's reared up. And I mean, the girly screams that were coming for it. And they were meant to have like a, a team lunch. I said, I'll come back after lunch to get it. So they've been in reception. There's a snake in our room. They're like, yeah, all right. So... We go to lunch, they're not at lunch. I'm going, ah, oh, this is so unprofessional. It's a disgrace. I think you should find them. And they're like, yeah, where are they? So after lunch, go back up to get the snake. Which is a great bit of banter, but now I've got a snake. So I'm on the bottom floor because I've got the disabled room because I've got my leg in plaster. Canada are like that tight. 
I've got a big bathroom, but half it's used as equipment room to get balls and bibs. So now I'm thinking, like, do they need to be hot or cold? I've not got a clue. So I run the bath, a hot bath, and put the snake on the floor for it's got options, whatever it wants to do. So it's in there now. So the next day I keep getting the snakes in there. I keep going in the toilet, oh, shit, snake, shut the door. So we're playing, play, I think it was PlayStation, and the kit man, Kevin Muldoon, who's quite an old geezer anyway, he went, oh, I'm just going to get the balls. And then the next thing you know, you hear this scream, and he backs out, ah, ah, and he hits the wall, and he slides down. And he's like, oh, God, snake, snake. I'm like, oh, shit, fuck, the snake's in the toilet. I forgot all about it. So he's, now the ambulance has come. He's, I think he's had a little uh, stroke. He's gone to hospital with the kit man. And I'm, so what happened, the snake was cold and it curled up underneath the ball bag. So he's lifted up this ball bag, seen this python, had a little arch stroke or whatever he's had, collapsed and now he's got the hospital. So now I'm all, so I've got this snake and now it's angry because during the night, I keep forgetting the snake's there. So I'm going in there to go away. It keeps biting my leg and stuff. So I'm like, right, Jimmy, we've got to get it back to the pet shop. So we go in there, I've got shin pads on me, I've got gloves on me, but we're getting this snake. So I'm like, Jimmy, hold the box open. So I get the back of the snake's head and I'm about to put it in the box and then it constricts around my arm. Now I think my hand's popping off. It, I can't, it's going all sorts of colours. So now I'm slamming the snake about, I'm dunking it in the bar and Jimmy's giving, you've got to poke it up its arse, it releases then. And I'm like, where the fuck had your arse on a snake? It's got a towel. And I'm panicking, poking it in the eye, poking it in the eye. And then luckily it releases. Get it in the box. Get it back to the pet shop. So he gives our money. He went, what have you been doing to this snake? I went, no, nah, I've just been keeping it in the bathroom and that. He went, what do you mean? It's got one eye. And I went, what? He went, yeah, I had two eyes. It's come back with one eye. And I went, oh, yeah, long story, mate, long story. So then, uh, yeah, that was the snake story. So like, um, so it seemed a great idea at the time, but then the amount, I didn't know that, I thought they didn't have teeth. I thought pythons and all that just crushed it. The amount of teeth marks got me, they got massive fangs. So like when I was going to the toilet and forgetting it was there, I'd be going away like midnight, and then I'd just get the fangs in the back of my calf. Oh, oh it's the snake again. So yeah, that was, that one. It was, it was a great prank at the start, but yeah, it didn't turn out the best for me. Few quick fire ones. Favourite sport outside yeah. of football? I'd golf. It'd be golf. Well, yeah, American. No, I'd go golf. Yeah, golf. Um, best teammate that you had who was at golf? So, who was the best golfer? Mine, a teammate, but it was a mate. Dave Bentley was good. Dave Bentley was good. Are you a box set man or a film man? Well, in lockdown, definitely box sets. Films are over quickly, so I've been a box set man, yeah, it drags it out. Beach holiday or city break? Beach holiday. Tea or coffee? Tea. Beer or wine? Vodka. <laughs> <laughs> Best players you've played with? I'll say my mate Kev Callan. See ya. Toughest opponent? Nakata was the toughest opponent for me, yeah. I didn't get near him. Tried to kick him all game, yeah. Nakata for me. Craziest teammate you've had and why? 
I would say craziest team, mate. Rowan Ricketts. I didn't expect that. <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't expect it. He asked me to loan him 10 grand. That's what I didn't expect. Yeah, that, uh, that's why I was the craziest. Yeah, can you owe me some money? I, I, I forgot my wallet. I was like, yeah, okay, no problem. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you want? 10 grand? No, I ain't got that in my car. So that's why I say Rowan Ricketts for that one. Good lad, though, but yeah. No way I was like, what then 10 grand my brother, let alone Rowan. <laughs> Best manager than why? Yeah, Ian Holloway, just because, just a top guy. Is there a team that you had the chance, obviously other than Ellie Galaxy, that you could have went to in your career and you didn't go and you look back and think, I wish I'd done that? So when I was at Bill, I think there was talk and a chance going to Wimbledon in a crazy gang. I think I, I fitted perfectly, yeah. But I didn't have a chance. And so probably I would say Sheffield United with Neil Warnock because QPR turned it down. They told me I had to put in a transfer request to go. This was in January. And then they promised me a, a new four-year deal. And then in the March, I was put on the transfer list because we had no money. So, yeah. Toughest player to coach? Oof. What, most frustrating or toughest? Or hard tackling or hard? Hard like, to coach in terms of just an absolute maverick. Not a maverick, but great lad. Ravel Morrison, one that springs to mind because he could have been so much better than what he was and probably not the brightest, so that didn't help me. Just how good is Ravel? Because it's like Adele, where the, the natural talent they've got just seems to be incredible, but sadly... No, 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 no. Adele's, for me, are on a different level to Ravel in talent. Like, I mean, regular, what he done in training was, like, breathtaking. And Ravel can do stuff, but nowhere near on a regular basis as Adele. And... Ravel, because he's such a likeable lad, you want him want him to do well, but you think, has he gone past it now where he can capture it and, and get back up to level? But yeah, if you're talking to players, Ravel and Adele, Adele was, for streets head for me, ability-wise. And the last question I've got, any manager from the past, Sir Alex Ferguson, Brian Clough, anyone at all, who would you like to have played under if you could have Terry chosen Venables. anyone? Venables. Terry Venables. Yeah, Venables, just because he's a QPR legend and uh, from a youngster watching his teams and just, he just seemed like a lovely bloke and just tactically well aware. Like, if you think, I look back now and think of the set pieces he was doing, offside traps and how he wanted to play back then. Like, not many, not many people in the world can leave a club like QPR and get a Barcelona job. So that's... For me, and then what he'd done in Euro 96, and now he used to get teams together. For me, that was my coaching idol when I started out, was Terry Venable. So, yeah, that's an easy question for me. Brilliant. I have to get you on again at some point, Mark. This has been the funniest episode I've ever had. Thank you so much. Yeah, not, even, not even spoke about me being in the Guinness Book of Records. Like, that should be, you've not even asked me about that. Go on, tell us. Right, now you can't mention it. Uh, yeah, no, I'm, a, I'm in the Guinness Book of Records. I'm the first person to score for their country without setting foot there. Because my debut was Canada, was Northern Ireland away. I sung the wrong national anthem because God Save the Queen was on. So I sung that. And uh, I sung, I knew the Canadian national anthem, so I learned it off of South Park. 
there was like a Terence and Phillips special where it had a bouncing ball. And then, yeah, so I met up with him in Northern Ireland and I scored. And then I'll never forget after the game, went into the interview because my name's spelled with a C. So the French reporters are just talking French to me. And I'm like, sorry, mate, I ain't got a clue what you're saying. I'm, and they went, oh, you're not from, you're not French Canadian, not from Montreal, Quebec. I went, no, I'm not even from Canada. They're like, you sure? Are you sure? I went, yeah, no, I'm from London. They went, what, London, Ontario? I went, no, London, London. And then, uh, then it just come through that, yeah, it's the first time anyone's ever scored for their country. Because normally, when you play for a country, you, you've either got parents or grandparents from that country that you visited, or if you have a training camp, it's normally in that country. So the last person that was close to doing it, but then couldn't do it, was Scott Arfield, because he played for Canada. But their game's in Vancouver, so he went there and trained before the game. So he didn't score, but if he did, he would be closer. Yeah, so there's another one. That's unbelievable. Honestly, as I say, with the stories you've got, this has been the funniest. Well, part of that one, when I went back to Canada, they made a, quite a big thing of it, me coming back to Canada in the press. I got death threats and got bullets sent to me, my initials on, where they was going to shoot me at the game. I had to go to the game in a different car in the Edmonton Cup. We play in Ecuador, so don't really need to play. It's fine. It's only friendly. But yeah, yeah. There's another story for the next time. Absolutely. Brilliant, Mark. It's been a pleasure. No problem.